You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome Ramsey Fawaz to read from his new book, Queer Forms, followed by a conversation with editor Ryan Anthony Hatch. Ramsey Fawaz is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of The New Mutants, Superheroes in the Radical Imagination of American Comics, and co-editor of Keywords for Comic Studies. With Derek Scott, he co-edited the special issue of American literature, Queer About Comics, which won the 2019 Best Special Issue Award from the Council of Editors of Learn Journals. You can also listen to an episode about that in our past catalog, so check that out. Ryan Anthony Hatch is, associate, is an associate professor of and director of graduate studies in English at California Polytechnic State University, San Luis uh, Obispo, hope I pronounced that right, where he also teaches in the Department of Theater and Dance. A contributing editor for PAJ, a, a journal of performance and art, Ryan is currently working on a book on the anti-theoretical the anti-theatricality of the revolutionary political event from the Jacobin Revolution to the global Black Lives Matter uprisings of 2020. Ramsey and Ryan, good to have you in. Thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be talking to one of my new friends and to be rejoining the Skylight uh, podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. No, we're so excited to have both of you on, Ramsey, for the second time. Um, Our listeners, once again, you can listen to... uh, uh, Ramsey episode with Derek, um, a great episode about uh, queers and comics and all that fun stuff. So please, please, please listen, check it out. Um, how are you guys doing today? Staying cool? Doing great. Oh, doing our best. Yes, doing our best. we're trying. We're trying to stay cool. <laughs> I mean, it's a real uphill battle, isn't it? Um, no, I listen. I hope the ACs are running and, you know, we're doing our best. Um, well, Ramsey, you have a reading for us today? I do. Ah, I, well. First of all, I'm thrilled to be sharing this new book with the Skylight audience because I, I, over the summer that, I, that I've lived in LA, I have gone every single week to the bookstore to just hey. sit and browse books and buy things. And it's always a scene. This is amazing. It's always packed on a Friday <laughs> night. Uh, so I feel oh uh, in good company. So I'm thrilled well, to be been- sharing some of this work. You came this summer on Friday nights and didn't say hi? Oh, I, I should have. I just was always <laughs> lost in the stacks. I was always oh lost in the stacks. God. But oh, so just to give a little bit of context. No, I'll not a, just away. to give a little context to this reading. Um, so uh, one of the things I do in this book is I introduce this concept that I call queer form. And what I mean by that concept is simply the idea of gender and sexual diversity uh, taking shape. The idea that a a given shape in the world, a circle, a square, anything you can imagine, right, could be inhabited by some version of gender and sexual divergence. And so a good example of this is, is me talking about how the circle, kind of a geometric shape, could be inhabited by a group of feminists who are uh, engaged in a consciousness raising session, right? And that becomes a queer form because it's, um, it's a shape that's inhabited by a certain kind of gender rebellion, right? And so part of why I come up with this term is that I'm trying to push back against the tendency in our current moment 
to celebrate notions of gender and sexual fluidity. And I say, actually, sometimes it's really good to take shape because it allows other people to kind of apprehend and see you. So I'm going to read a few paragraphs from the conclusion of the book where I kind of summarize my defense of the idea of queer form. Um, and I, I thought that would give the audience like a little bit of a picture of kind of what like uh, the polemical part of my argument where I'm really like fighting for an idea. Uh, all right, so I'll get started. As I have argued throughout this book, in a world where gender and sexuality are highly variable and idiosyncratic categories of lived experience that therefore cannot easily be disciplined to conform to our political values, queer forms provide provisional outlines that allow us to conceive one or another version of gender and sexuality in the mind's eye. These figures become launching pads for flights of the imagination about gender expression, desire, intimacy, or kinship that can work on and substantively alter people's affective or emotional relationship to these very terms. Everyday experience readily confirms for us that cultural representations of difference, even the most nuanced fictional stories about women and queers of color, for instance, rarely disabuse people of pernicious logics like racism, sexism, homophobia, or transphobia all on their own. And yet, aesthetic forms do enter people's lives in startling and unforeseen ways, sometimes eliciting meaningful dialogue between friends about their distinct interpretations of various works of art, literature, and media that can reorganize or subvert entrenched assumptions and values. We saw in chapter four how Tales of the City successfully promoted a positive idea of queer and transgender existence that had tangible psychic and behavioral effects on its audience in the 1970s. This was possible because of the combination of Tales of the City's depiction of queerness as a pleasurable and desirable form of serial public disclosure and the unique context of its reception in the San Francisco Chronicle as a daily story which encouraged recurrent dialogue between local readers. Over time, these conversations influenced many to alter their views about homosexuality, expand their definition of family, learn to support queer friends, or else come out themselves. Instead of condescendingly instructing his audience on the so-called correct way to be gay, the proper language to use around all LGBTQ people, or the most progressive view to hold on queer life. Armistead Maupin generously shared his own version of that life with San Francisco readers over and over again. By choosing to give shape to 1970s gay urban cultures one way, then another, then another on a daily basis, Maupin continually took a position on the nature and meaning of modern day queerness that could then be embraced, adapted, dismissed, or argued against by any member of his readership. Without artists' willingness to publicly give shape to their own fantasies of contemporary feminist and queer life, and consequently solicit the views of others, no sense of a shared reality between gender and sexual outlaws and their allies could possibly have emerged in the radical 1970s or after. 
If the world unfolds before us as a seemingly boundless expanse of sensory data and appearances, forms allow us to differentiate what will come to matter to us in this infinitely multiplicious landscape. This includes all the distinct molds, identities, or appearances we take in the course of a life, but also the figures, icons, images, and constructs we creatively craft to share our worldly reality, our sense of things, with others. When we choose to give apprehensible shape to our highly particular, idiosyncratic, yet meaningful experiences of gender and sexuality, we are making a judgment about or developing our own interpretation of some aspect of embodied erotic or intimate life, and we make our viewpoint public. This is what the queer artist David Wojnarowicz once described as the act of creating an image based on his most private queer desires and quote, putting it on the wall in the hopes of soliciting the reaction of countless potential viewers whose perspective might make life less lonely. This is the meaning of queer form. It is the continual practice of forming that leads to the constitution of new kinds of collective life, the inhabitation of novel styles of self-expression, the adoption of unexpected political views or perhaps simply finding out that maybe it wasn't you who was always right or morally superior or the most politically progressive or the queerest of them all. But how would you know if you didn't risk taking shape? When we seek a false freedom in the fantasized ideal of gender and sexual fluidity or revert back to our most rigid predetermined categories of identity, we abdicate the responsibility to articulate and share our distinct perspective about what it means to be queer, femme, gay, trans, non-binary, feminist, bisexual, or something else entirely. People do change from one form to another. People do inhabit their skin in new and unexpected ways across time. People can <laughs> and do become less or altogether anti-racist sexist, homophobic, and transphobic. Yet these transformations are not effortlessly achieved by approximating an idealized liquid state or waiting for an absolute and unimpeachable set of rules on how to properly pursue a progressive queer life. Rather, they commonly take place through clumsy, laborious social and effective processes of testing out new identities and desires incorporating foreign experiences and creatively conceiving other ways of inhabiting the world. Such transformations require the presence of multitudinous queer forms to provide formerly unimaginable possibilities for what we could be or become, but always our own version of it. There you go. <laughs> There's a little sample of what I'm, what I'm trying to put forward in the world, the shape that I'm trying to put forward. Okay, so Ramsey, let's talk yeah, about I'm this so book. I'm so thrilled to see you, Ryan. I'm so great. It's so great to chat with you here today. Yes, the feeling is mutual. I have many questions for you. Yeah. Um, this book is so big. It's so ambitious in its mm -hmm. scope. It's so rich. It's doing so much work. This is just a warning to 
whoever is listening out there. Um, even if I get through all of the questions that I want to ask you, Ramsey, we are going to just touch on a fraction <laughs> yeah. of what this book is doing. Um, so before I even ask a question, I want to thank you for this book, for the gift thank of this you. book. Um, I would not be doing my duty or following my desires as a good faggot if i <laughs> did, if i did not i won't say confess but if i did not announce that the passage that you've just read brought me very close to the edge of tears when i was Aww. reading it um this book is going to be so useful for so many scholars but i also just want to stress what an inspiring Thank you. It that is. means so much to me. And that is something uh, I really aimed for in the project. I really wanted to make a, a, a big, imaginative and inspiring statement to queer people and women today that, yes. look, you have a long history of being in alliance, right? Yeah. And like, we yeah. actually need each other more than ever. And let me tell you why. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you say that you're addressing yourself to um to women and queer people and not even specifically to women and queer academics or feminist yeah, and queer academics. Absolutely. This is clearly an academic book. It's a profoundly erudite uh, scholarly book, but it's you, some of my questions will try to get us to get at this more. Um, the scope seems to me to extend mm -hmm. well beyond that rarefied domain. So taking into consideration that we are speaking before let's say, a, an unpredictably heterogeneous audience. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just start at the very, very beginning? Yeah. And have, just tell us what kind of book queer forms yeah. is. Where does it belong? Like, literally, where am I going to find it in yeah. Skylight? Yeah. Um, what's the genre? What fields is it contributing to? Yeah. And who are its audiences? That's a great question. I think, you know, you're going to see immediately queer forms on the LGBT section of the bookstore. But I actually think it could fit in so many different areas. It could fit in cultural criticism. It could fit in um, history, in American cultural history, um, and in in theory, in like in, yeah. in areas of theory and criticism. But I think, you know, fundamentally queer forms is telling two stories. And the first story is that it's looking back at the queer and feminist 1970s, this extraordinary moment of the explosion of women's and gay liberation, these two movements for gender and sexual freedom, where women and queer people deeply inspired by the civil rights movement, right, by the, the demand by African Americans for their full humanity, women and queer people were inspired by this and said, we are also marginalized groups we want liberation for ourselves. Liberation does not look nearly like legal equality, though we definitely want that too. It yeah. looks like a complete reinvention of what gender and sexuality can be, right? The women's movement was about imagining like new possibilities for who women could be in public life, inhabiting new kinds of roles, um, yeah. like exploring their sexuality in new ways, changing their relationships to one another and to men and to queer people. And the same thing was true of gay liberation. So part of what I'm doing in the book is looking back at that era and saying, look, women's and gay liberation were deeply mutually influencing the demand by women for a greater expanded experience of gender 
uh, was also shared by gay people of many stripes, um, lesbians, gay men, transsexuals, as the, as they were, as you know, what we would say transgender today, but transsexual was the dominant term in the 70s. Right. And that we can see that mutual influence most intensely in art and popular culture. Yeah. Why? Because in art and popular culture, artists were irreverent. They didn't care about making really fine grained distinctions between women or gay people or transsexuals. They were like, we love all these ideas about gender and sexual liberation. Let's try to invent all of these new aesthetic or creative forms for articulating or expressing to wide audiences what it is like to be gender or sexual non-conforming, right? So I look back at the period as a moment of incredible invention yeah. When all of these artists, writers, and filmmakers became so inspired by the project for gender and sexual freedom and said, let's try to change art. Let's try to invent new aesthetic forms for, for expressing what it means to refuse gender and sexual um, norms in this country. So that's yeah. kind of one story I'm telling. Is yeah. I'm, I, One of the ways I put it is I'm telling the cultural prehistory of the moment of gender and sexual revolution we're living in now. Yeah. I'm trying to say, look to all the gender and sexual warriors today, you have a long history that at least goes back to the 1970s and it might behoove you, it might be beneficial to us to look back at some of the creative experiments of the 1970s to reclaim it rather than throw it into the dustbin of history, right? So that's one story and the second right. story is a more theoretical one that is a critique, a loving critique of the popularity of the of the idea of gender and sexual fluidity, which has become so common today as a refrain. Like the idea, like we we now kind of all assume on the gen on on the social justice left that being fluid, having an open ended, flexible, mutable, transformable identity is the best way to live in the world. Right. And part of what I say in the book is I say, it actually creates a huge amount of problems for people to try to liquefy their sense of self. It's disorganizing, it's painful, and it, uh, it creates an aspirational ideal that's almost impossible for anyone to achieve, right? Like right. that's so difficult to achieve the ability to constantly transform without the slow labor that is required to change. Right. And so I say, what if we what if we actually thought about the, the way that gender and sexuality changes in terms of shape shifting rather than fluidity, in terms of the way that we inhabit different ways of being gendered and sexual beings over time, and that that process is slow, just like people's political transformation sometimes is slow. And right. that seems like a more honest approach to what gender and sexuality is as a lived experience. Okay, so uh, just a couple of things just in immediate response yeah. to those comments, Ramsey. I think one thing that I want to underscore for future readers of queer forms, um, it's absolutely 100% my sense as well that you are writing a, a beautiful prehistory of our present moment. Yeah. But this is not merely a prehistory. It's also a message to the present moment that for the let's say by and large, this yeah. present moment is egregiously misprising its prehistory, yes. right? And so this is a like, there, there is a kind of polemical thrust here uh, to, re, to rescue from a certain kind of summary dismissal, which, you know, is 
present at this moment, but you know, you say as much in the book, this misprision has been around for about as long as queer studies has Absolutely. been an institutionalized academic practice, right? So you're trying to reconnect to historical moments that were kind of artificially torn asunder to Absolutely. a certain extent, right? Um, I'm I'm going to ask you in a little bit about the way in which your critique of the outsized role that a certain ideal of fluidity plays mm -hmm. relates to a critique of rigid identitarianism. Yes. Right. Because that's yeah. also These kind a stake. of two poles. They're mm -hmm. two poles, right? And I think you're making a, a really original argument here that I think to some ears is going to be counterintuitive yeah, at first, absolutely. but I, I find it really compelling. What I want to do though is kind of press pause on the theoretical for a moment yeah. and, and consider the very first queer form that your book yeah. thinks through. So you open queer forms with a meditation on Thelma and Louise. Yeah. Uh, right? Kelly Quarry. My favorite movie. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Kelly Quarry, Ridley, Ridley Scott, 1991, this uh, kind of, you know, late 20th century feminist masterpiece. You open with a, a really fascinating reading of the film, specifically its unforgettable final scene yeah. in which, you know, Thelma and Louise decide to keep going. Yeah, they fly right. off of a cliff into the Grand Canyon. Let's not get caught. Let's yeah, keep let's keep going. going. So the interpretive overture to queer forms made a really strong impression on me, not primarily because of how it demonstrates your powers as a cultural analyst, though it does that, mm. um, but rather because it gives your reader a really vivid and moving sense for how cultural objects like Thelma and Louise have formed you. Yeah, uh, that's a beautiful a, way of putting it. As a queer person and yeah. an intellectual. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read just a little sure. bit of this passage, which I find just really moving. You write, and this is just on page two of the book, I was 11 years old mm -hmm. when I first saw Thelma and Louise take to the sky, too young to grasp what was at stake for two women whose humdrum lives as a neglected housewife and unhappy waitress are obliterated in a flash when one of them murders an attempted rapist. But I recall with complete clarity the thought that entered my mind as my eyes widened in surprise and wonder at Thelma and Louise's winning gambit. This is about freedom, quote. So you open, Ramsey, with this, to my yeah. mind, really really powerful scene of feminist and queer mm -hmm. interpolation, right? Yeah. You're, at the, you're at the cliff's edge of adolescence. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. You're, you're not really even, re you're not reading Thelma and Louise. You're showing us how Thelma and Louise read you so yes, long ago. Yes, that's so ago. lovely, that way of putting it. So I'm wondering, we'll get back to theory. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about the ways in which queer forms bodies forth or speaks to your own singular yeah. trajectory as a queer person, sure, as a queer academic, but I think more broadly just as a, as a queer person yeah. living Absolutely. in this specific time and place. Right. I mean, in many ways, as, as a very expressive and what we might call like flamboyant young, um, young boy or man, I was so frequently read 
by the yeah. culture at large as gay, as a faggot, at, right? All these things right. that I felt both like, formed by the culture. I felt like I didn't have a choice, right? I was read so aggressively by other boys as gay that I was like, well, what are, what other options do I have? Right? right? I mean, I remember that growing up. I'm like, I guess I'm going to be gay no matter what, like, right, because this is what's available to me. This is how I'm being interpreted. And right. I felt that the only way that I could carve out a space in that is to take my own shape to take my Good. own form, right? Yeah. So people who know me really well know that one of my, you know, defining features as a scholar, but also as a person is that I'm very loud and very opinionated. I take like a lot of positions. Like I really yeah. believe in the idea of position taking. And what has, yeah. in, in, what has intrigued me as I've grown older and I increasingly teach a Gen Z generation of really impassioned, wonderful, like just really energized and politicized young people is how much they don't want to take a position on anything. Right. They like they they just like love universal inclusion. They love fluid identities. Like everything is an open-ended kind of like cloud. Right. And my thing is to say that like as powerful as that idea seems in in actual lived practice, human beings are unique and distinct and cannot be flattened into like liquid. Right. So in a sense what I'm saying uh, at the beginning of the book is like, let me show you how certain popular culture forms, like the image in Thelma Louise of the women clasping hands before yeah. they fly off of that cliff, they imprinted themselves on my mind and they became objects that I could play with. So what yeah. I do in the introduction, right, is I talk about how the same year that I watched Thelma Louise, my mom and I came out to each other in this really powerful scene of mutual, um, uh, like just disclosure. My yeah. mother told me that she is gay, that she's a lesbian. And, and then I in turn told her that I think that I'm gay. And in my mind, I can made sense of that moment of coming out with my mom. It, it reminded me of the image of the women clasping hands, Yeah. right? So whereas most contemporary um, young queer people tend to look at those cultural objects and judge them based on whether or not they politically accomplished what we want them to. Like a yeah. lot of my students watch Thelma and Louise and they're like, well, you know, they never come out as lesbians. So like the movie is, is conservative. And I'm like, no, it didn't need them to come out as lesbians. By clasping hands, they gave you an image of solidarity that could be two straight women, to gay women, bisexual, but it could be any, it could be open-ended. Right. And so what I try to do in the book is model a form of interpretation that pays attention to how queer forms arrive to you and transform you yeah. rather than an attempt to judge them in advance by all these predetermined political categories that we're so obsessed with today. Yeah. 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 Th this is really useful for me, Ramsey, because I'm thinking, you know, as a, as a young uh, boy uh, having certain signifiers also like aggressively lobbed at me yeah, uh, yeah. quite frequently, for you sure. know, I, I felt the force, uh, I, I felt the forces of homophobia seeking to shape me Absolutely. on my behalf. Right. Yes. So I think this is a really interesting way of thinking through um your really rigorous critique of fluidity or yeah. liquidity as yeah. the ideal of queerness, um, because liquid is what is going to get shaped by an extrinsic Absolutely. solid container, exactly. right? Whereas the form of Thelma and Louise's uh, hands clasped in friendship gives you 
like you said earlier in your reading, a launching pad for imagining your own way of forming yeah. against the forces that would seek to shape you, Yeah. Uh, right? So I think this is a really interesting way of thinking about the power of form that your book comes back yeah. to again and again. Absolutely. And I would say this is why, you know, the book is organized for, you know, for our viewers, I'll just give you a little brushstroke of like the book is organized around each chapter looks at a different concept that the movements for women's and gay liberation invented, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea of gender and sexual equality. The first chapter is about that problem of what does it mean to be equal? Uh, another chapter is about lesbian separatism, that kind of a political idea of di completely divesting from patriarchal society, like going to live on farms and utopian communes. Uh, another chapter is about feminist consciousness raising, and another is about coming out of the closet. So, the, and there's more than those concepts, but so those are some of the key ones. And what I do in each chapter is I show how a political idea, let's say feminist consciousness raising, the, the simple concept that women should sit in a circle and share their experiences of misogyny and sexism because it will allow them to create or pool their knowledge of that experience. I show how that concept was translated into a creative or imaginative form by some kind of artist, writer, or filmmaker. So in the chapter on consciousness raising, I look at the kind of acclaimed film the boys in the band, um, in which a group of gay men sit in a circle and scream at each other for two hours <laughs> about their experiences of homophobia. And the brilliance of that movie, even though it got so much criticism um, for circulating, like people thought that it circulated gay stereotypes. I argue the opposite. I say part of the brilliance of the movie is that when you get nine like, gay men together arguing about their experiences of homophobia, what you discover is that you get nine different versions of what it means to be gay, yeah. right? Like nobody has the same experience of being a gay man. And, it, and so what we get out of the queer form of the circle is plurality, a mm -hmm. sense of the idea that being gay is a shared experience, but never shared in identically the same way between everyone. And that is really, really powerful, right? So part yeah. of what I say in the book, like to speak to, to the point you made about fluidity is that I love the ideal behind gender and sexual fluidity. I'm totally on board that gender and sexuality, the ideal of fluidity says gender and sexuality changes, right? Like both of these categories change, yeah. they're mutable, they're socially constructed. I'm on board with all of that. In practice, however, fluidity often becomes an ironclad ideal. The, yeah. the idea that everyone should be fluid transforms fluidity from an ethic a spirit of open-endedness into its own rigid identity. Right. And so part of what I point out is that when fluidity becomes a kind of orthodoxy of gender and sexual freedom, when it becomes almost like a religious or spiritual like um, rule under which everyone must live in order to be free, it inverts into its opposite. It yeah. becomes its own form of identitarianism and then it becomes a nightmare and so I say, like, maybe we could escape that kind of binary between fluidity and rigid identity by imagining identity as shape-shifting, as yeah. something that is always changing, but never as fast as we think it is, yeah. never as liquid, it's clumsy. And I, I think that seems more accurate to what, what it is like to inhabit a gendered and sexual body. Yeah. And I want to just add to this, Ramsey, one of the other, like, really 
compelling claims that your book is making throughout is that uh, queer form, which maybe we've been thinking about it at the level of the, you know, the discrete subject, sure. right? I'm fluid or I'm taking this yes, specific yeah. shape. You also make a pretty impassioned case that uh, feminist and queer world building, sustained, durable, uh, cultural formations are yeah. not are not possible if we all kind of yoke ourselves to an impossible moral horizon of, of fluidity. Absolutely. That, so I think that's just important to note. Um, I, I'm going to ask a little bit later. I have a sure. question about uh, your chapter on, on Boys in the Band, which oh, yeah, I yeah. found so fascinating. But it had to do with the question of translation from uh -huh. the political to the aesthetic. Yeah. Let me first just, you, you've said a lot so far about queer forms, uh, this object at the heart of your book. Let me ask a kind of flat-footed question. Sure. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm slow to these things. What, <laughs> what is it that makes a queer form queer? Yeah, it's a great question, right? Like any shape, that one can even imagine or render in the mind's eye could become queer, I say in the book, with the right imagination. You would need to link it or articulate that shape to some form of gender and sexual divergence. So to go back to that example, right, a circle is a classic geometric form that is transhistorical. And what I mean right. by that is that it exists, like a circle is a circle in ancient Greece or 1974. Like that's a shape that we can mm -hmm. recognize as human right. beings. But when a group of uh, queer people inhabit a circle, right? When they get together in a consciousness raising circle around 1972 yeah. and follow a program <clears throat> of gay co male consciousness raising, um, it becomes queer, right? Because the circle becomes inhabited con self-consciously by a form of gender and sexual divergence. So yeah. part of what I say is like, part of what's so interesting about form as a concept is like, um, Form at its core means the differentiation of different objects from one another. It means like congealing or taking shape. Everything in all of existence can have a form, right? I have a, I have a footnote where I say playfully, right? Even theoretical black holes can have a form in your mind. <laughs> right, you can imagine right. a funnel. Right, like you can imagine that a black hole looks like a funnel. We don't actually know that it looks like that. We don't. We're, we're like trying to. We're trying to imagine what it right. looks like. But form is the is the combination of an apprehensible shape in the world, but also its reconstitution in the imagination. Twenty of us might look at a circle and see twenty different versions of what a circle is in our imagination. So form is both about taking shape, but it's also about the interpretation we add to those shapes. Right. A queer form is really any shape that comes to be linked to expressions of gender and sexual rebellion or divergence. And yeah. that, like the fact that we can transform shapes into that means yeah. like that, that demands that we not simply accept fluidity as, as an innate or inherent um, property of gender and sexuality. It demands right. us to actively cra craft queer forms, right? Yeah. Like not to assume that they are queer, but to make them so. And right. that's that I think is powerful. Right. I, I, so I really like this. I, I think stressing at the outset, as you do, that a form as such 
a circle obviously in itself isn't queer no it's not neither it's neither neutral. right yeah. neither is it neither is it not queer right yeah. it's yeah. it's not it's not homophobic either um there could be fascist if a bunch of you could, know if a bunch of like uh right-wing conservatives in, are inhabiting the circle it could be like a fascist form right like it, it could be any number of things right so the what's essential about understanding the queerness of queer forms is that it's not intrinsic to a specific formal structure. I, I just, I'm lingering on this because, you know, this is not the like main task of your book, but you do put some gentle, but real critical pressure on queer studies tendency yeah. to, let's say, valorize in the realm of the aesthetic, either yeah. the, the ephemeral yeah or else the difficult and yes. in certain you know and not just this is not specific to queer studies but in contemporary aesthetic theory i think more broadly right maybe since adorno yeah uh, at least um difficulty is given pride of place absolutely in of kinds of aesthetic and cultural work that it can do yeah. um you know, sometimes to the point where people are making arguments that difficulty would be intrinsically queerer than yes. something like a low or popular cultural form like yeah, the novel, like movie, yeah, the, the Stepford Wives, yes. right? Yeah, um, which I write about uh, in the first chapter. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's important to stress that um, when you speak about queer forms, you haven't discovered certain kind of like formal arrangements or patterns that you've determined to be intrinsically queer, but no. that you've discovered ways in which uh, gender and sexual dissidents have taken up and worked with exactly. certain formal properties and that the queerness has to do with that relationship. Exactly. I mean, a, a good example, right, is in chapter two, what yeah. I look at, the form that I look at, if in in chapter three, I look at like the geometric form of the circle and consciousness raising. In chapter two, I think about the concept of lesbian separatism, which I mentioned earlier, right? It was this kind of political ideal of completely cutting ties with a patriarchal sexist society and basically exiting, being like, we're going to go somewhere else. And right. I say that separatism uh, presupposes the problem of form. Because what does it mean to separate? It means to distinguish yourself, to right. separate from something and then to reformulate on your own. Right. And one of the things that we see in a lot of popular culture, particularly science fiction movies in the 1970s, is that a lot of uh, filmmakers try to imagine what a separatist commune would look like, right? Yeah. So I look at the film Zardoz, which imagines literally a like an, uh, an impenetrable dome shield that covers over this kind of utopian collective and i say like th these are attempts to imagine in the mind's eye what it would look like to separate and reshape a different community and um so yeah like i think like it, it is really important to point out that part of what i'm saying is that there has been a romance of fluidity within the field of queer studies which yeah. says that the power of queerness of being sexually divergent uh, or gender divergent has to do with the fact that we are um, making gender and sexuality like liquid or ephemeral or a kind of dissolving it, right? It's about the dis yeah. dissolution of identities. But yeah. here's the problem with that. It's an incredibly compelling idea. I like some of it, right? Like yeah. I also believe in dissolving identities. It's an impossible place to live in permanently without right. feeling so disorganized that you are traumatized by that experience, right? right? Like there has to be moments where you land on some kind of identity, even if it's provisional, even if right. it's always changing. 
And so I say, how do you deal with daily life if you're always imagining your sexuality as liquid, as ephemeral? It strikes me when I look at this generation of students, they tell me that they're so invested in fluidity, but then all they talk about is their gender and sexuality. And I'm like, it's obviously very important to you. These categories are obviously very important. So if they weren't important, why would they just be mellifluous, right? Why would they just be like a cloud? Right. And part of what I say is like, look, if you are going to diverge from gender and sexual norms, as most of us do, including the most normative of all people are always diverging, you have to translate that to other people who may not understand what it is like to be trans, to be non-binary. And so that's why sometimes you need these everyday cultural forms to show other audiences, look, this is one way that one might inhabit gender in a surprising or unexpected mode. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's I think that's beautifully said. And I also just want to point out, I mean, this is obviously already clear to you, but if, if the listener hasn't heard it yet, the, the student who is, um, you know, kind of maybe a little bit righteously demanding sure. a kind of radical fluidity yeah. uh, as the ethical space, the ethical norm of queerness is also demanding that Thelma and Louise identify themselves legibly as lesbians yeah. that they t- that they take a rigid stable <laughs> this is the uh, biggest yeah for, I, I, right no i want to just quickly comment on that i'm glad you mentioned this right because part of what i say often in my work uh, is that the, the the students of mine, and I, by the way, I speak with love. I adore of my course, students, and I adore course. this generation of students who are really so impassioned, and um, they really want a different world. They want a less homophobic, less transphobic world, and yeah. I so admire that. But there is a deep irony in their politics, which is a lot of the Gen Z generation that I've encountered will simultaneously say, we are obsessed with gender and sexual fluidity. We want to be able to constantly change, mm-hmm. but then they demand such rigidity in other arenas. So I will have students who will say, I'm gender and sexual fluid, but if you mispronoun me, I will die a social death, right? The stakes are that high. Right. And I look at them and I say, you have every right, 100% to ask people to nominate you in the way you want to be nominated, but, right. but like, if you're asking for flexibility and open-endedness, can't you also be flexible and open to the idea that people make mistakes or might see you in more than one way? And the same thing about the way they interpret culture, like you just said. When my students watch Thelma and Louise, here they are celebrating gender and sexual diversity. And then they're looking at the movie and saying, the movie didn't live up to my political uh, values, which is that they should have been openly lesbian. And I'm like, you just pinned the movie down to one interpretation. Right. How can you do both? And my claim in the book is that uh, another way to put this is that I think this generation is demanding a level of gender and sexual diversity and flexibility that they themselves are terrified of. Right. That like they want a level of freedom that is actually so complex that the reality of negotiating that many differences, that many categories, it's really hard. There are no rules. If you want to talk about gender and sexuality being so multiplicious that there are hundreds of different expressions of it that cannot be pinned down, 
It would require us to be engaged in constant open dialogue about yeah. all the ways that we inhabit gender and sexuality. And I think a lot of young people today love that idea, but in practice, it's very hard. It demands yes. that we yeah, disagree, that we argue. And so what happens is the yo-yo between the wish for that and, and falling back on the most rigid categories of identity rules, basically, right? Yeah. Like these yeah. are the pronouns you're supposed to use. This is how you talk about trans people because the, the alternative, which is continually inventing new criteria for thinking through gender and sexuality rather than relying on predetermined social justice rules, that's scary and yeah. that's hard. And yeah. the point of my book is like, we should lean into that scariness. We should yes. lean into that difficult thing and we should develop skills to do it really well. Yes. So, okay, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Um, I wonder if we can dive a little bit deeper into a concrete instance yeah. in the book yeah. of, think, of thinking through the relay between aesthetic or yeah. cultural uh, queer form and social or political queer form. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you would talk to us a little bit about Armistead Maupin's yeah. Tales of the City and what you're doing with the uh, work in its original form yeah. in queer forms. How does Tales's original serial installment form constitute a queer aesthetic form? Yeah. And what and what does that seriality have to do with the political form of coming out of the closet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, a, this is a great question. What am I, this, this case study is very near and dear to my heart. So for those audience members who are not familiar, Tales of the City is the most famous gay serial fiction ever written and arguably one of the most beloved works of gay fiction ever written. Um, it initially started as a serial narrative in the San Francisco Chronicle that lasted for about two years between 1976 and 78. Armistead Maupin was a gay journalist who became a fiction writer in the late 70s. And he was invited to write this story about a group of San Francisco friends, um, kind of just like getting used to living in the Bay. What the editors at the Chronicle did not anticipate was that over the course of a few months, um, Maupin would start to introduce all these gay characters uh, and queer characters that he would show you that what, like some of the characters were transgender, some of them were gay, some of them were lesbian. And most of the straight characters turn out to be very queer in one way or another. So like, even if they have what we would think of as straight sex, they live a very queer life. They're promiscuous. I say that in a good way, mm -hmm. right? Or polyamorous. And so this should astound us. I remind people all the time, the idea that a long form sustained gay fiction was appearing in a mass market newspaper. This is like the LA or New York Times of the Bay Area, that like hundreds of thousands of people were encountering this story um, uh, every single day for two years is amazing. And of course, later the story explodes. He writes nine novels based on these characters. It gets turned into a PBS and then Showtime television series. Like it has a long cultural life. What amazed me was that nobody had studied the story in its original format. So there's like one yeah. great academic article about tales by this brilliant scholar named Robin Warhol. Um, but she looks at them as novels, even though she talks about it serially. So I went back and I actually found every single entry in the newspaper. Like I went and did old school archival work 
I studied the newspaper. I studied the stories that were, were circulating around Tales of the City. Like, what did it mean to open the newspaper to see actual journalism about all kinds of things, you know, about Jimmy Carter, about, you know, local Bay Area happenings, about the increase in gay populations in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then to read this fiction. And I took it a step further. I ended up interviewing 30 people who read it in the paper as it was appearing. They were gay and straight, different, different gender expressions. They came from different walks of life. And this mind boggled me because what consistently came out of the interviews is people said, by reading this story every single day, five days a week with other people in the Bay Area, I was talking about what it meant to live a gay life in San Francisco, even as a straight person, mm -hmm. right? Many of them said, with others and it changed me. That's what people kept saying. It changed me and the people around me. It made us less homophobic. It made me more excited to be connected to a queer world. So what was beautiful about this is that, you know, most of the time as people who study literature, we're able to give you a million different interpretations of some text or another. We have a really hard time explaining how a work of literature actually affected people's everyday lives. And here was a moment where I could say, look, People looked at this literary form. And when I say that, I mean like the form of serial narrative, mm -hmm. like something that comes out daily, but has larger arcs. And I point out in the chapter, you can give that sh a shape in your mind. Like when you looked every day at the paper, the, the, the story looked like a square in the paper. And you could imagine it in your mind, like this little square that's like, there's a square every single day and you're imagining it unfolding almost like a comic strip right, yeah. in your mind, there was a moment in which people began to associate that everyday entry with coming out, that it was like a unfolding of disclosure. Every day, some character or another comes out about their sexuality, saying more about their private life. And I think what's amazing is that people began to associate serial unfolding, the unfolding of serial fiction, with the unfolding of revelations about one's sexual and erotic desires. Mm -hmm. So that reading serially became like an analogy for coming out of the closet, which was a slow and steady process of letting other people know about who you are, about your interior life. And so the beauty of it was that telling those stories happens over a long period of time. It's never just one story, it's many. Okay, so let me just follow up briefly, uh, Ramsey, because this is so fascinating to me. I, I want to just underscore something here. Um, in the field of literary studies, we tend to think, and maybe this is somewhat cliched, but I think it's reasonable to a certain extent, we tend to think about literary formalism as being about as remote as we can get yeah. from the like lived experience of yeah. like, or quote unquote, ordinary readers, yeah. right? I find it really interesting that in the development of what you call a queer formalist method, yeah. you enter into this almost sociological process, yeah. not, re not relying on it entirely for your findings, but structuring your reading around the reports of these readers so that when you talk about the serial form being an analogy for the process of coming out, this isn't purely an interpretive move 
that you're making on your own, right? You're showing that this is an interpretive move that a that a culture in a given time, yeah. in a given place is making. This is what readers together. did with the story, exactly. Right. Like right. they they reshaped it in their mind as as like a story about their own coming out. People were like, like literally, readers looked at the daily installment of Tales of the City and they thought, this looks a lot like my own coming out as yeah. a gay person, as a yeah. lesbian, as transgender, or as a straight person coming out to the queerness of San Francisco. So there was a way in which the literal shape of the story got reorganized in people's minds as a description of their own unfolding yeah. into a new queer San Francisco world. And that is what, that's the power of art to change people, right? It gives them a new mold to imagine themselves unfolding into the world, right? It's like an, an, an elaboration of a self into the world. And that's why we need art to help us do that, to yeah. give us shapes that we can play with. So you you say in, in the book, I want to rescue the queer promise of yeah. Tales of the City. But then I'll, I'll just say this as an aside, and I wish we had more time to think through this together. Uh, you also, in the very next breath, say, we, can, we are not going to thereby absolve Mm -hmm. Maupin's text yeah. of its significant limitations when it comes to, for instance, yeah. his ability to imagine uh, cross-racial affiliation yeah. and coalition, his ability to imagine Blackness at the characterological yeah. level. Um, you are able to um, rescue what is promising from the text while holding it accountable for its failures, right? Absolutely. And those two things happen side by side. Um, I think, yeah. No, please go. I just quickly to say that part of what I try to do throughout the book is to say that queer forums don't need to do everything for us, right? That we can look at Tales of the City in the 70s and say it did so many amazing things for queer people. It was not so good at talking about racism in the gay community. Right. It was not so good at representing non-white people. But that didn't mean that it couldn't do that, right? Like decades later, when they do the Netflix version of Tales of the City, they introduce all of these queer characters of color and they start to address issues that the original story didn't. And part of my argument is that there is nothing about serial storytelling that forecloses the possibility of telling the stories of all kinds of queer people using that model. Just because Maupin uh, shied away from that. And I argue that there are complex reasons for that, right? That there was a feeling right. that he didn't have ownership over the queer of color experience, that he wasn't allowed to tell that story, um, which I argue is kind of a creative mistake on his part. Yes. Just because that happened, it doesn't mean that serial storytelling could not accommodate the story stories of queer people of color. And the newer versions of it do do that. So I try to encourage readers of the book to be generous with queer forms to be less concerned about where they fail us and more concerned with what they allow or afford imaginatively. So it's like, if you encounter a queer form that you feel doesn't account for some version of queer or gender non-conforming life, why don't you reinvent it instead of obliterate it? Yeah. Right? Like, why don't you you actually engage in a pract in imaginative practice of revivifying it for a new audience? Yeah. Well, Ramsey, thank you so much. This has been thank such a you. fantastic conversation. I've learned so much and I learned so much from your book, which I know is going to be 
widely read, widely cited. And I hope that scholars, artists, activists, and just feminist and queer people uh, pick up this book and read it. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to share it with you and the world. And I, I can't wait uh, to hear what people think. Um, thank you both for that conversation. That was so, it was so great to listen to that. And, yeah, you know, thank you. I mean, there were so many times that I had to stop myself from jumping in the conversation <laughs> being like, well, I have, that's <laughs> interesting because, yeah. you know, um, no, it was so much fun to listen to. Um, our listeners, this is, you just go buy the book, Queer Forms. It's, it's on sale now. Thank you. It's, it's at Skylight Books now. And it is I mean, it's a great read. So um, good. It's so good. Um, both of you, do you have any last things you'd like to say to our listeners? You know, our, the fans and patrons of independent bookstores or just like your own independent bookstore community? Um, uh, I My message is simple. <laughs> Buy all of your books at independent bookstores. <laughs> you, you knew it's that already? Yes, if you are anywhere near Los Feliz, Los Angeles, and you haven't been spending all of your book money at Skylight, um, the time has come to change your ways. <laughs> you know, I uh, just, I'm going to add an, just another dimension to that. I'm going to basically repeat what I said when I did this podcast with Derek Scott. You know, I really just believe in promiscuous reading. I think you should read everything. And I think, in, you know, I think this audience probably already does that. So I'm just going to affirm what I think this audience already does. It's like the beauty of reading across genres, across styles, you know, going into a bookstore and reading academic books, reading cultural criticism, reading fiction, like refusing to ever read one thing. I remind people all the time that while I was writing Queer Forms, I was reading about psychedelic studies, um, scientific studies about psychedelics as well as cultural analyses of its history. I was reading a ton of Buddhist self-help literature, which I'm still reading because I really still need it in my life, right? I was reading a lot of cultural criticism because I was inspired by people like Gia Tolentino and Jenny O'Dell and Malcolm Harris, who are more like journalists who are writing in a very accessible way to a wide audience and admiring what they're doing because I have yet to do that, right? Like I write in a very accessible way, but it's still academic. Like I'm writing in a, in, a, in a different style. And all of that inspired me. I'm sitting here writing about the contingency and unpredictability of gender and sexuality. Well, Buddhist philosophy is all about dealing with the contingency and unpredictability of life. So by reading promiscuously, I found all these amazing connections across fields of knowledge I would never have expected. And I, you know, I might be an academic at a major university, but I'm still reading like self-help literature. You know, I'm still reading popular fiction. I'm reading a, a widely, you know? And so I would just tell people, go into that bookstore and be totally surprised mm -hmm. by the weirdness of the stuff you find. Buy books in sections you would never expect, flip through them, learn everything. Uh, have a broad ecology of reading. That's, wow, that's great advice. That is, <laughs> I can't compete with that. You want to work at Skylight? You got the job. Like, come on by. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. I'll, I'll be there in the summers. <laughs> you know, you know, get a good, you know, we'll get with some books if you decide get to discount. come. Get a little, get a little uh, store discount, you know? Um, yeah. No, thank you. Thank you so much, Ramsey. Thank you so much for coming back. Absolutely. Um, my pleasure. Listeners, go back and listen to that um, past episode with Ramsey. It was a great episode um 
And Ryan, thank you for coming on. We appreciate thank you for having it. me. I know. You're thank you so much. My great pleasure. conversation partner. Um, no, thank you both again to our listeners. Thank you for if it's your if you've been come listening. Thank you for coming back and listening uh, to our podcast. And if you're new, check out our old episodes. We have some cool stuff. And please come back and keep listening. All right, Bye, to everyone, to everyone listening, you have a beautiful and amazing rest of your day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.